Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Nathaniel Rich is the author of the novels King Zeno, Odds Against Tomorrow, and The Mayor's Tongue. He is a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine and a regular contributor to The Atlantic and the New York Review of Books. He lives in New Orleans. We're very happy to have him here in Los Angeles. Jane Smiley is the author of many books for adults, including Some Luck, Horse Heaven, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning A Thousand Acres. She was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters in 2001. Saddles and Secrets is the second book in the Ellen and Ned trilogy, right after Writing Lessons. Jane is also the author of five, is the author of five, five Horses of Oak Valley Ranch books, The Georges and the Jewels, A Good Horse, True Blue, Pie in the Sky, and Gee Whiz. She lives in Northern California where she writes horses every chance she gets. Please welcome Nathaniel and Jane. Hello. Thank you for coming out. Yeah. I hope Second. I don't have anything to say. Yeah, you assured me that you would do all the talking before. <laughs> oh, uh oh. Um, yeah, it's really great to be here with you all. Thanks for coming out. I know how hard it is to come out in Los Angeles for anything, so I'm <laughs> honored. Uh, and uh, it's really an honor to be here with James Smiley, a, a writer, novelist I admire uh, so deeply. Um, and so I'm, I've been really excited for this uh, this this event. Um, and it's also a thrill for me to be back in the store. I, I came here. Uh, for the first time when my first novel was published 11 years ago. Um, and uh, so it's very special for me to come back. Uh, and <clears throat> so I'm going to do a short, uh, I'm going to read a short passage. This is from this book, Losing Earth. Um, I'm not going to really talk about it because we'll have time to talk about oh, it. Oh, yeah. We'll yeah, okay. This is just uh, from close to the beginning. It's, it's introducing one of the main characters, James Hansen, NASA scientist, who uh, would become the face of climate science um, internationally. And uh, this, is, uh, this is him and his wife. In the living room of James and Anique Hansen, under a bright window giving out to Morningside Park, there's a brown velvet love seat that nobody ever sat in. Eric, their two-year-old son, was forbidden to go near it. The ceiling above the couch sagged ominously as if pregnant with some alien life form, and the bulge grew with each passing week. Jim promised Anique that he would fix it, which was only fair because it had been on his insistence that they gave up the prospect of a pre-war apartment in Spoiden, I can never say this, Spoiden Dival, overlooking the Hudson River, and moved to this two-story walk-up with crumbling walls, police siren lullabies, and gravid ceiling. Jim had resented the commute to the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies in Manhattan, complaining that such a profligate waste of his time, 45 minutes each way, would soon be unsustainable once the Pioneer spacecraft reached Venus and began to beam back data. But despite living within a few blocks of his office, Jim couldn't find time for the ceiling, and after four months it finally burst, 
releasing a confetti of browned pipes and splintered wood. That was April. Jim repeated his vow to fix the ceiling the next time he had a spare moment. That would come, according to his calculations, on Thanksgiving Day. Anique held him to his word, though it meant that she had to live with a hole in her living room ceiling for seven months, seven months of plaster and dust powdering the love seat. Another promise Jim made to Anique, he would be home for dinner every night by seven o'clock. By half past eight, however, he was back to his mathematical preoccupations. Anique didn't begrudge him his deep commitment to his research. It was one of the things she loved about him. Still, it baffled her that the subject of his obsession should be the atmospheric conditions of a planet more than 24 million miles away. It baffled Jim, too, when he came to think about it. How he traveled to Venus from Denison, Iowa, where he'd been the youngest child of a diner waitress and an itinerant farmer turned bartender, was a mystery, the outcome of a series of bizarre twists of fate for which he claimed no agency. It was just something that had happened to him. Hansen figured he was the only NASA scientist who, as a child, did not dream of outer space. He dreamed only of baseball. <clears throat> On clear nights, his transistor radio picked up the broadcast of the Kansas City Blues, the New York Yankees AAA affiliate. Every morning, he cut the box scores out of the Omaha World Herald, for which he served as Chief Denison delivery boy from third grade through high school, pasted them into a notebook, and tallied statistics. In a childhood of deprivation and meagerness, during his earliest years, he shared two rooms with six siblings in homes that lacked running water and a refrigerator. Hansen found comfort in numbers. He majored in math and physics at the University of Iowa, but he never would have taken an interest in celestial matters were it not for the unlikely coincidence of two events during his graduation year, the eruption of a volcano in Bali and a total eclipse of the moon. On the penultimate night of 1963, whipping wind 12 below, Hansen accompanied his astronomy professor to a cornfield miles outside of town. They set a telescope in an old corn crib that Hansen shortly discovered was being used as shelter by every beetle, fly, and wasp from the surrounding 40 acres. Between two and eight o'clock in the morning, Hansen made continuous photoelectric recordings of the eclipse, pausing only when the extension cord froze and when he had to race to the car to avoid frostbite. During an eclipse, the moon resembles a tangerine, or if the eclipse is total, a drop of blood. But this night, to the consternation of Hansen's professor, the moon vanished altogether. Hansen made the mystery the subject of his master's thesis, concluding that the moon had been obscured by the dust erupted into the atmosphere by Mount Agung on the other side of the planet from his corn crib six months earlier. The discovery stirred in him a fascination with the influence of invisible particles on the visible world. You couldn't make sense of the visible world, he realized, until you understood the whimsies of the invisible one. I'll stop there. Thank you. I, I think, um, I'm sure that one of the reasons that you decided to write this was that everybody in every character was an interesting person every person that you focused on and paid attention to. They were like um, characters in novels. And um, I think that is one of the great things about this book is that you just, yes, we're all interested in the climate issue. We're all interested in what happened and where it went. But following each individual person is really interesting. Yeah. I. I uh I was really interested in, in the characters, and I didn't know that would be the case when I started researching a, a, a piece about a bunch of scientists and mm -hmm. policy, you know, wonks, basically. 
Um, but what was so exciting to me about people like even Hansen, who's this genius uh, scientist, um, and certainly Rafe Pomerantz, who's the other main figure, who is a, a activist and kind of political lobbyist, is that <clears throat> they came to the issue um, just like fresh, just like all of us do, I think, when we first come to terms with, with the, the, this, this question of, of global warming and, and everything that it'll lead to. And their responses were also, I think, the same ones that we all have, which is essentially, um, holy shit, this, it's, surely this is not uh, as bad as it seems. Yeah. Uh, surely if it's this bad, somebody's dealing with it. Um, and over the course of this decade, I think they go through, it's very intuitive to me, the choices they make. It's sort of what I think most of us would do. I mean, I think of the beginning, certainly, it's like the scene at the beginning of any disaster movie where the scientist, like the scientist, like leaps up from the desk and fixes his, his spectacles and says like, oh, oh my God, that's not a, you know, a meteor, that's an alien spaceship coming. And, and he runs to the joint chief of staff and alerts them and says, you know, and it's, that's basically what they do. Uh, and they run to, uh, you know, in the power corridors of Capitol Hill and they try to get people's attention. Well, that brings, makes me wonder. So at what point, um, how old were you when you, when it suddenly struck you and when you suddenly said, oh God, what is going on here? That's a good question. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I, I guess there's sort of a, I mean, I remember learning about the issue when I was a kid, when, during this period, I think, um, in the late 80s, but yeah, when so did they it... were teaching, they were teaching it in school? Well, I remember learning about recycling when I was nine, <laughs> uh, and feeling that that was really important. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember a little bit about the ozone hole and how scary that was, and the idea of the sun blasting through uh, the atmosphere and, and causing blindness. Um, as it was feared, and uh, but no, I think thinking about it in in personal terms, um, I don't. I think probably maybe not until I was into my late twenties, early thirties, mm -hmm. and and I think I still uh, I go through phases where I put it totally out of my mind, and other mm -hmm. phases where I become obsessed about it, and I think that in some ways is only maybe the only human response is to alternate between. Um, sort of blithe optimism and despair, and it's sort of a muddle, I think. Mm -hmm. So, do you feel that that's what the um, that that's what your characters have done too? Uh, I mean, Rafe Pomerantz and and Hanson. You think they too have sort of alternated between despair? Yeah, and I think they've been more. Well, Rafe is an interesting case. I mean, he when he first. Uh, discovers this issue. He's sitting in his office, um, 1979. He's 32, and he reads this this obscure government report that mentions in passing on page, you know, 66 that, uh, oh, and by the way, if we continue to burn fossil fuels, you know, the world will end basically. And his wife is seven months pregnant at the time. Um, my wife is currently seven months pregnant, and and he has this conversation with with her that I think is now something I've heard, talking about this book, I hear it all the, all the time, almost every night um, on this tour is, uh, he says, well, is this really a good idea to have children? Is this, is this wise? Um, have we made a mistake? And um, so he's going through the same kind of personal crises that I think people are increasingly going through now, but he was just there 40 years earlier. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, and so it's, I think it's, 
for me, telling the story of these people is also trying to tell the story of how this great public crisis is touching our own personal lives in all kinds of ways, in which some of which we're not even conscious of. You know, I'm old enough to be your mom. And, um, <laughs> and when you get to be my age, your kids start telling you uh, what to do, as, as most of you know. And um, when I express my worries about these issues, um, m my kids kind of say, oh, you know, we'll take care of it. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think that's true? When did you become concerned about it, or are you concerned about it? Oh, I became concerned about it um, in 1988 oh. when um, there was a big heat wave, and uh, that's when I first learned about And there was a big fire. There was, that was the Yellowstone Fire. And actually, in um, the, tri the trilogy, the series of books that I wrote, I put in a woman, a young girl, who becomes obsessed because of the fires. Um, and that's probably when I first paid attention in 88, and I was living in Iowa, and it was very, and we knew about Hanson because he was from Iowa. Right, and you could see the fires in Chicago, I think. There was something, you could see some of the well, smoke. Well, they said and, that, yeah. they said that. I mean, the, um, it's really interesting how far the smoke and the dust actually get when things are really going wrong, and maybe that's what people need to alert them. Yeah, and what's, why, as, as, uh, as an Iowan and an expert on all things Iowa, why, why are all of these, uh, these great um, astrophysicists, why do they all come out of Iowa? I never figured that out. Because they can see the stars and oh, there's no smog. Right, okay, that I makes guess, sense. I don't know. Well, because Hansen, I mean, this, this Hansen is such a crazy, is such an interesting figure to me because he, he really firmly says, like, I don't, I didn't get in, you know, I didn't care about, that. not only did he not care about, you know, climate science, but he didn't even care about outer space. And, and, mm. and uh, the only reason he went down this, this route was he happened to be at the University of Iowa with this, this famous physicist, James Van Allen, mm -hmm. who was from another farm town mm -hmm. not far away and was teaching at the school. And he essentially had, he was the author of the whole strategy to put a man on the moon. And also, you know, the Van Allen belt is named for, and he's mm -hmm. a significant major figure, and he had come back to Iowa, I also don't really know that, to teach at the University of Iowa, and Hansen was, happened to be a student, and he was sort of directionless, and Van Allen said, well, why don't you study the climate of Venus? And he said, sure. Well, and then he know, went down this path and became the world's most famous climate scientist. One of, one of the things I think is fascinating is how these little connections, just these little happenstances happen. So, so the guy who, I wrote a book about the invention of the computer, and the guy who invented the computer, he happened to come to Iowa State because um, Harvard was too late sending their acceptance of his um, employment. And then he happened to invent the computer at Iowa State because there was an engineering school and he could get a student to put the machine together. Whereas for Alan Turing at Cambridge, there was nobody around to put the machine together. So he couldn't do, he, he couldn't do the engineering side of it. Right. So a lot of ways, all the things we know are about the world that we live in have to do with just these weird with Iowa. chances. <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't say that, but just <laughs> these weird chances that things happened. Right, you know? right, yeah. 
And that's a great book. I highly recommend to everyone. Man oh, who thanks. invented the computer. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, and uh, yeah, I think also, and in sort of novelistic nonfiction work about science scientist and. Um, I was looking for those when I was working on this. I didn't find many other oh, examples. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. So as you were working on it, did you find yourself becoming um, angry, more angry, or were you able to handle that somehow? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Let me explain a little yes. bit. Yes, yeah. Um, so what Nathaniel does is he follows the issue of climate change from when it first became um, a political, a known political issue. And everybody in the government said, oh yeah, we need to deal with this, we need to deal with this. And then, boom, Reagan came into office bringing John Sununu with him. And suddenly the opposition, which he talks about in some detail, suddenly the opposition decided, you know, why bother? And so, essentially, we're screwed, or we could be screwed, in a way that we wouldn't have been if they'd actually stuck with their original ideas. Yeah, I mean, it's, so, <clears throat> it's, uh, I think, you know, I think the, f the first thing that struck me is, you know, I found, and so I was doing, I was doing a lot of, of research, I went to National Archives, I, I, I um, and ended up interviewing more than 100 people who were in these policy circles around Washington and trying to solve this thing. And, um, and I read every newspaper article. And, and uh, I, I, in the archives, I found this incredible document. And this is sort of one opened up the story for me, uh, which has never been reported on. And I just really just came across it. And it was a meeting held four days before uh, the election that Reagan would win. So at the end of, of Carter's term, and um, despite some setbacks, Pomerantz and, and Hansen and others had by then been able to get Congress to pay attention. There had been the first hearings about the issue, 1980-81, Al Gore in the House led some hearings um, when he was just a junior congressman from Tennessee. And this congressional uh, air study group basically said, okay, let's get the 30 experts of the world on this subject together in a room and tell, and tell us what kind of laws we need to pass to fix this thing. And for, for no really good reason, they, they pick as a venue this crazy resort hotel in Florida, right on the, on the Gulf, um, the Pink Palace, Hotel Don Cesar, which is like where F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda would go to like cool off after Benders and Al Capone would hide out and Babe Ruth um, <laughs> also to cool off of Benders. And, um, and so they go to this insane resort uh, and it's beautiful outside, and these 30 experts get together, and Rafe is, is one of them, um, and so is a, a scientist from Exxon who's been studying it, and, and all kinds of um, politicians and, and so on. And they all agree on the science. They all agree that it's a problem. They all agree that they need to, it's their responsibility to act, and, and basically at the time they think they're gonna solve this thing, 1980, 81. And they cannot agree on a single sentence, let alone policy recommendation because they're all full of sort of self-doubt, object scientific, this sort of scientific um, language, they can't agree on any terminology, and, and that, it's, it's, a, it's almost a comic scene, and I, there was a transcript of this meeting, it's like 600 pages, it's a conference of the course of three days, 
and it reads like almost like a, a play. Um, it's like 12 angry, it's like 30 angry men basically. And, and it just starts off really optimistic and exciting and they're just full of energy. And by the end, they just all hate each other and are furious. And um, one, there was like one woman there who's a doctor who's uh, there as sort of representing the, the congressional group. And she, she essentially almost bursts into tears at the end of it. And she says, this is crazy. Like, we got you into this room together so that you could try to solve, you all agree. Why can't you just, just write, you know, just a statement? And they sort of go on on their own, their, you know, each one goes on their own sort of, um, you know, hobby horse. And they never, they never can do it. And, and that, to me, is in some ways encapsulates the whole story of how tricky this is uh, to solve, even when everyone's on the same page. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, yes, by the end of the decade, after this is elevated to the level of national policy, you have uh, global, a global treaty is seen as a solution. It starts, starts to be negotiated. You have this um, dark hat of uh, villain of John Sununu comes in, um, who's essentially the, the, the uh, patient zero of climate denial. And he has his own pet theories about, um, he's the first person to really question the science in a, in, a, in a serious way. And he also has these conspiratorial theories about leftist forces using the science to um, destroy the economy. And single-handedly, uh, through this, this power fight <coughs> within the White House, he manages to force the US to withdraw from any kind of agreement. And so it's, in some ways, it's almost like a black comedy if it wasn't so tragic yeah. uh, at the same time. So as you were writing about these people, what kept you from tearing your hair out? Oh. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it's, I, I guess it's how I feel about any piece of writing where even if the subject matter is, is dark or upsetting, the, the process of writing is, is exciting and fulfilling. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I was thinking about, you know, narrative and structure and, but yeah, I mean, it was at times if you, when I stopped to think about it, it does seem fairly insane. And there are moments like I interviewed John Sununu at length and I said at one point, so let me get this straight. Like, are, you are single. You are um, you're single-handedly responsible for stopping any any chance at solving climate change in the you know on the planet. And he he sort of was like, well, that I, it's, he basically said like that's kind of you. I'd like to take credit because he still denies the the science. Um, but you know, I wish I wish I could I could boast that. But in fact, um, I felt that I was being the only the U.S. was being the only honest broker in this international negotiation over, over this treaty because he didn't think that even if they had signed this global treaty that the other countries would live up to the mm. terms of it, um, which is sort of another debate that could be had. I, I disagree. Um, but, but it is, you know, when you zoom out, it's easy to talk about the failures of, you know, capitalism or of or U.S. democracy, um, of our institutions. Um, and yet, when you when you go closer, you realize it's a bunch of people in a room, arguing, and each with their own craziness, and and it's sort of the oldest human story there is. Um, I, one of the things I noticed when I was reading it, and I did I read I read it twice, but one of the things I noticed was th that your tone is not particularly dark, um, and and that makes makes the book. Uh, easy to read and easy to understand because 
you're so interested in the people. You're knowledgeable about the issues, um, but you're interested in how everything plays out. And so the reader just sort of moves along, um, taking it in. And in some ways, I wasn't as shocked as I wanted to be, <laughs> you know? I, I have to say. Yeah. And I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I think so much writing on this subject comes from, understandably, comes from outrage and frustration and, at this point, bitterness and anger that, that we haven't solved it yet and that there has been all this failure. Um, and I think that's valuable. I think there's something very valuable about that kind of writing. But I also think there's something valuable about um, a story about people um, making decisions and and struggling with these these larger questions about um, you know how 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 is this affecting the way we live? How is this affecting the way we think of the future? How is this making us question our own identity, the identity of our our you know democracy? That if if we can't act on this very fundamental issue, how can we really say we believe in all the fundamental values that we hold as the you know central um, the pillars of our yeah, democracy, of our civilization. Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And I don't, I feel like that kind of, those questions haven't really been posed mm -hmm. in the literature on the subject, and I felt that that's where I could try to make a contribution more, just to ask some of those questions mm -hmm. as uh, more than, say, than, you know, adding to the pile of, you know, here's, here are the policies that we need yeah. to enact next year. Okay, so I'm going to raise, ask another question. So I've been reading, um, Odds Against Tomorrow, which was your second book, right? And that's from 2013. And the protagonist is a very interesting guy named Mitchell um, who begins his life and spends his whole life being thinking about horrible things that might happen um, either tomorrow or 10 years from now, but a whole list of them. And is that, is he based on you? Are you like him? Or is he just somebody that you saw from a distance and thought was interesting. It's very funny because I got that, uh, I got a version of that question yesterday from someone named Mitchell, uh, <laughs> who lives, who was born in Overland Park, oh, the really? suburb where <laughs> Mitchell Zucker is from, and he's a, he's like a, he might even, I don't know, he's a risk analyst like Mitchell, but he was something close, and he wrote me, and out of the blue, I got this email. I said, "Did you base your character on me?" <laughs> um, and he's like, just joking, but not really. I was like, um, but uh, he's in part based on someone I, I know, but loosely enough that that person, a friend from college, doesn't know that I did uh, okay. it, um, even though he, his middle name is Mitchell. Oh, I've never made the connection. Um, but it's also, yeah, it's, it's, so it's a character who's, who's obsessed about worst case scenarios, and he gets what seems to be his dream job, which is to predict worst case scenarios as this risk analyst in, on Wall Street um, and begins to profit off of it. And, uh, and then um, one of his scenarios actually comes to pass, which is a hurricane hits New York. And there was this odd coincidence of writing a novel about a hurricane hitting New York and flooding. And then it was published like a couple months after Sandy actually hit New well, York and flooded. It really struck me because when I was, I, I knew that I had to in, end my trilogy in 2020. <clears throat> even though I finished writing it in 2014. Right. So I had to do something I'd never done before, which was to try and come up with um, mm. dystopian 
science fiction. Uh -huh. And when I finally did it and published it and then looked back at it, I realized, no, it was not dystopian enough. I should have called you. <laughs> well, that's, I think writing about the near future is like one of the hardest things because you're so frightened that yeah. any, something you write will happen or... No, I was frightened it wasn't. It wasn't going to happen. <laughs> you just suppressed your anxiety to write. Yeah. I, I was convinced every year that a hurricane was going to hit New York and I'd have to mm. th throw out the novel. And then it did hit New York, but it, as bad as it was, it wasn't struggle to talk about this in a way that doesn't sound hideous but as bad as, was, okay. yeah, as bad as it was as bad as it was it wasn't so bad that publishing a novel would be in bad taste you know it wouldn't be like publishing a like a terrorism novel in you know December of 2000, yeah. uh, 2001 um, so it was just bad enough that, that made people think that I was writing a like a documentary that was like somehow about Sandy but not bad enough that they had to cancel the book. Um, but no, it's, I think, um, uh, yeah, Mitchell, I think, I think like, like um, he has a lot of, I have, I share a lot of those anxieties, mm -hmm. anxieties uh, about the future and it's not just about climate change and, but it allowed me to take it to um, these logical, but e extremes. And that was really fun. And I think for, if anything, it was a kind of exorcism of some of those fears. Because, oh, is that right? It, so it Yeah, because I think as you, yeah, self-therapy. I mean, because mm -hmm. once, you, once you take everything, you know, once, once you really stare at the, the you know, worst case scenarios and um, anxieties about the future, it has a kind of leveling effect and you have to, it forces you to become kind of zen about it, I think. Well, I'm not going to give away the ending of this, but I will say that it's a little more positive than I expected it to be. I mean, the whole time I was reading it, I said, okay, what's he going to say at the end? What's he going to say at the end? And I got there, and I thought, oh, that's a hmm. little more positive than I expected. Yeah, and well, they didn't solve global warming. <laughs> not yet. Not yet, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, so the piece, I mean, it started as a piece in the New York Times Magazine, and, and um, there was a brief afterward that my editors really wanted me to write that was essentially you know well what do we make of all of this and I was resistant of writing so I, 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 I had something but it was sort of gest gestural and then when the piece came out <clears throat> that was the there was, oh, that was the resounding response was well what do we what do we make of this what do we make of this failure what are we you know and so I did feel some obligation to try to mm -hmm. answer that in greater depth and it's not 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 that I have um, the answers Exactly, but I, I do feel that it opens up the conversation. It's a way of opening up the conversation to a larger, to sort of a deeper level and to discuss the human dimension of it a bit a bit more broadly. And so that's... Um, okay, so are we ready to open up the conversation? Sure. yeah. And discuss the human element? The human element, yeah. Yeah, if a doctor can be sued for malpractice, why can't a politician or Can a politician be sued from? I think it's uh, that's voting. I guess you take throw them out of the. Well, office. there are suits that are happening well, now about are, endangerment. Yes. In fact, tomorrow night I'm 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 doing an event in in Portland um, with uh, a lawyer from our Children's Trust, which is this incredible lawsuit um, that has 21 uh, child plaintiffs, including James Hansen's granddaughter, and Hansen's working on the case. And it's one of a number of major legal cases that are trying to set pr legal precedent, basically, on climate change. And the, the, the theory is 
Um, they're suing the government and saying that by failing to solve, to address this problem, and, and you know, the, US, the government's known about it from at least the 1950s. It's not just 1979. 1979 is, is very solid scientific consensus in the beginning of action, but Lyndon Johnson, you know, was briefed on it and, um, and so on. So, so they have the whole history, and so they're suing the government, and the idea is that, that the government has, um, I forget exactly the constitutional clause, but that it's um, prevented the plaintiffs from having their, it's infringing on their basic right to liberty and um, security and um, other rights that are guaranteed in the Constitution. And, and that lawsuit has actually cleared some hurdles. Um, and along the way, it was filed under Obama. And when <clears throat> uh, uh, it was filed, the, the oil and gas industry, um, particularly American uh, Petroleum Institute, which I write about in the book, which has sort of shaped this whole narrative about denial um, and this, this whole propaganda effort that's been going on for decades. API didn't trust Obama, the, uh, the administration, to defend the, the case well, so they joined the suit. And so then when they joined the suit, the lawyer said, great, now we need discovery on all of your internal documents about <laughs> climate change going back for 50 years. And then uh -oh. they tried to get out of the suit. Uh -oh. uh, and then uh -oh. Trump came in and they, and they tried to get out of it. Um, and that, so that legal fight is ongoing. Um, there's a, they're, they're doing some kind of a big march in, in June. Um, but that's one, one version of this approach. And there's a million other cases um, against the oil and gas industry. So there, there are efforts to try to hold these companies and the government responsible. Um, but I think it also begs the question, you know, even if you were to have show trials of, you know, Exxon executives and throw, you know, the people at API into prison or, you know. Um, take away all their money. Take away all their money. You still have to solve the problem. You know, that maybe that yeah. would be good. Maybe that would be healing. And you, yeah, and that's one of the mechanisms they are trying. Yeah. So people are trying that. Yeah. It's been interesting to watch the Extinction Rebellion in England and yeah, how huge it is. Yeah. And it's basically, as far as I can tell from reading The Guardian, it's basically young people saying the same thing. You've screwed us, and we're going to make you pay. Yeah. And I certainly hope they do. Well, there's been a profound shift, I think, in, in the last six months, just in the conversation. I mean, basically... The activist line that originates with Hansen and with Pomerantz in 1979 <clears throat> is an, an appeal to reason. It's saying that we have the science, we know what to do, and uh, it's, it's, it's silly not to act, and we better act soon. And you hear that in 1979, you hear it in 1988 from James Hansen, you hear it from Al Gore, Inconvenient Truth. It's just, now we have even more science, even more data. We have pictures and graphs. Um, and that, that's been the argument um, until I think really the midterm election when you have the emergence of the Sunrise Movement, um, the Green New Deal folks, Greta Thunberg, the Swedish activist, and they're making a different case. They're saying, um, they, they say, yes the, si yes, the science is real, et cetera, but the emphasis is on um, you are harming us. You know, you're in action, speaking usually to older you know, politicians and, and in industry, um, you're stealing our future away from us, you are killing us, um, this is un this is unjust. This is a crime. It's a very different. It's a moral language, 
and I think it's had a, it's had a major effect on the public conversation. Whether that's enough to you know change things, we'll see. Yeah, I think the bottom, I mean, the, the, the big picture view is something like James Hansen <clears throat> told me is, um, you know, we have the technology to keep, to keep warming within, you know, even one and a half degrees uh, above historic averages. We have the technology, the economics are there uh, in a way they weren't 40 years ago. It's very clear um, that this is good on, on the whole for, for global economy, for national economy to, to make this transition from fossil fuels, um, but we're lacking political will. Uh, William Nordhaus, who won the Nobel for um, in economics recently and is, was the author of basically carbon pricing, started working on this in the mid-70s, says the same thing. It's, it's, the solutions are out there. They tend to be the same grab bag. I mean, James Hansen has his own plan. That's a 12-year plan that starts, not coincidentally, um, like the day Trump's first term ends, or term ends, we'll see. Um, and well, the, the strategy banks on him not winning, I guess I should say. But it's it's some combination of carbon pricing, um, you know, more investment in, in renewables, investment in decarbonization technology, which is very still very speculative, agri better agricultural practices, um, and uh, some mitigation. Nuclear. Hansen's a big proponent of nuclear, which is more controversial. Um, so there are a million of these like roadmaps that are out there. The technology's there. Um, and so the question is, how do you move these political bodies? Yeah. Hey. Uh, my question is about um, like uh, developing population centers with big population, less industry. So like, how would you say the outcome of India getting their industrialization right? Is it how, how does it rank in importance to what policies might happen here, or like what's yeah, high high priority, and and I think India will will surpass will be, but projections have it you know being number two or number one by in the next few decades, and uh, yeah, and if nothing's done, most of that energy, new energy consumption is coal, and it's a disaster for the planet. And, and James Hansen's solution, which is like again very controversial, is basically to export nuclear technology to all of the developing world. That's not the only way of doing it. Yeah, and this is a problem they're talking about in 1978 and 79 as well, how to, how to handle that. And part of what's changed is it's, it's now cheaper in many cases, if not most cases, to do solar and wind instead of opening a coal plant um, or even a gas plant. Um, but yeah, it, it's the level of policy and work that's required is, is gargantuan. It has to be organized and it has to be done well. Um, there are ways of doing it, but... Somewhat, I mean, part of the part of the one of the one of the the most um, treacherous things about denialism in this whole campaign is not only to sow public ignorance and to and to politicize the issue, but to put off reasonable debates that could happen about climate policy. Like, what are, what's the best way to help India? Um, you know, and 
uh, modernize and or just even escape horrific poverty uh, without destroying uh, the planet and and you could imagine in a healthy democracy there might be different views about what are the best paths, but we don't even get into those conversations yet because we have a party that doesn't even. Well, I have a question, concerning that, I have a question. So did you interview any true, dedicated denialists? I, yeah, well, Sununu is. But I mean people like the Koch brothers. Oh, well, that's the, see, I didn't have to interview a lot of, the, I mean, I had the luxury, most people who write about this issue today um, you know, the deniers won't really talk to them. And, and I, okay. I was talking to pe the people who created those strategies originally in the 80s, uh -huh. and they're mostly retired now, or perversely, they're like green consultant, like the head of the API environment group who figured out the strategy that became morphed into denialism. Does he have any denialism. shame? No shame. Um, he's really proud of the book. It's really confusing. He came to the Washington event and he sat next to this, next to me, and Rafe Palmer. I did the event with Rafe Pomerantz, and this this guy t um, was sitting next to me, and he was very proud of the book, and excited. We took a picture together, and he's like a nice guy. Um, and he worked, um, he you know, he worked under Reagan on ozone and and CO two. He helped broker an agreement between Reagan and Gorbachev to address climate change in 1986, um, and. And yet at API, he, he authored this strategy of, the first version of it was, um, we need to engage in, in the political debate, because it, it seemed at the time that some kind of climate legislation was inevitable. Mm -hmm. We need to be an active participant. We need to um, uh, make sure that the no policy goes beyond the science. We need to emphasize uncertainty in the science where it exists, which is very different from saying that the whole science is uncertain. Yeah. And then the key thing was we, can't, we won't endorse any policy that affects the bottom line of the industry. And that's the beginning. And under him, you the, 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 the PR campaign of getting some scientists to say that there's not consensus and paying them begins. And then that part of it is so successful in changing the public narrative that, that ends up being where all their efforts are focused. This is, these are the people I don't understand, who can look at the world that they themselves are destroying and say, oh, I did a good job. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think he wasn't there when it got, it, when it went into the full delirium of, mm. of denialism, so I think he probably, he distinguishes, he makes that distinction, yeah. but yeah, gen generally, I mean, Sununu is interesting to me because I think he really is sincere about his, his theories. I don't think most national Republicans who say, well, maybe the climate's changing, but I don't think man is responsible. That stuff, I don't believe they're, I think the best, the most charitable interpretation is they're ignorant, like, or maybe like a Rick yeah. Perry figure, but like, for the most part, I think they're just, you know, towing the line. Yeah. yeah. Stop, back right there. Yeah, it was. I mean, I <clears throat> I cut a third for the article. Um, I was able to expand it a bit. I mean, there's a lot of information I wanted to include that despite the length of the article, which was like 30,000 words, I, I couldn't fit in. Um, but it, in some sense, it, I mean, the first version was this like master, extremely boring version that had everything in it. Um, 
so as, as difficult as it was, it was also, I knew it was, you couldn't tell, you couldn't add, you know, 20 more meetings or like, you know, yeah. congressional hearing. It was just it was deadening. So it was, it, the tricky thing was figuring out which ones to emphasize and, and dwell in. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, this was Hansen's early research, uh, and it was volcanic dust acting as a counter, counterbalancing um, CO2 and actually cooling, having a cooling effect on the planet. And that's, that's, that, kind, that idea is behind some of these geoengineering theories of putting, seeding the clouds with sulfur and making, cooling the atmosphere artificially. But it's, everyone's pretty scared about that because it seems like a lot could go wrong if you start to do that. Um, yeah, I was interviewed by Terry Gross. It was really stressful. Uh, it was not in person. I was just in a studio in New Orleans. And um, and the interview was also, I found, really weird because it was a lot of questions just about, like, Trump and climate change and not and less about the... I mean, there was some about the history, but it wasn't uh, in the depth that I expected. But then they edited it all together, and it, I think it ends up sounding really good. And But I was... There were, it was at an angle that I wasn't prepared for, so that added to my anxiety, uh, well, general anxiety also, about not a, being articulate. She's a pretty aggressive interviewer, and if you're not used to that, it, it can sort of take you back. Yeah, and she was, aggressive, she was just aggressive about things that were not what I expected her to be yeah. aggressive about. You know, so it was just like, she's it was quite, at an she's angle. She's pretty old style yeah. in, as an interviewer. You, you've had your experience. Yeah, one, one yeah. time, yeah. What was your experience like? I thought she was very hostile, and then I listened to the interview, and it didn't sound hostile She probably retaped her. It was just something about her demeanor. Yeah, she she had this whole long thing, and I haven't even listened to the interview because it was so the whole thing was too stressful. But um, I don't know if it made it. But she had this whole she's like building an argument about how we really couldn't have solved global warming in this period. Mm -hmm. And it's not even like that's, that's not really the argument of the book. So it's, I'm not like, it's like, okay, you know, you could make that argument. I, I, I could give you some more evidence for why, mm -hmm. you know, maybe Sununu was right that it wouldn't have, but that's not really the point of the, right. So anyway, but that's getting in the weeds. She did a great job. <laughs> Well, I mean, the most shocking thing was just, you know, there's there's nothing that we're, no conversation we have about the issue, including the most speculative, you know, geoengineering ideas or, or developing world or, um, you know, responsibility of U.S. leadership. Everything that we talk about today, you can find basically in the transcript from the Ping Palace meeting. And 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 so the the, the fact that so much of the conversation not only didn't seem dated, but seemed in many ways often more advanced than the level of the, like, now I feel like, and I think it's a prod, byproduct of the denialism thing, we speak about the issue in a really childish 
way. Like, are we going to beat this thing? Or are we going to die? Like, are we, uh, you know, is, is, uh, is it, po you know, is it possible or is it not possible? Is it, um, should we be hopeful or should we be fearful? And it's like, how, ch how, you know, can we be a little more adult about the issue? And, and um, especially the thing of, which has been the main, a big conversation in the activist community for, and over the last number of years, is like, what's the best way to motivate people to care? Um, and there's the, the trend is that, oh, it's, we need to make people feel excited and hopeful about all the good things that are going on because if they're not, they'll tune it out and they won't act. And it's like, I don't think a lot of the countries that are way further uh, along in, in, in the policy and technology than us, like in Scandinavia or like Germany, I don't think they're particularly hopeful. Like, it's not how they, you know, it's like a different, it's very American. And I think it, we've been stymied in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and gone backwards in the conversation. And, and so it, it, it made that clear to me, uh, reading that they were talking about it in a more sophisticated way in 1980. Mm. But even another example of that, I don't mean, and I was listening, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has like done more for the issue nationally probably than anybody else. <clears throat> Last week, she, or two weeks ago, she was giving this impassioned speech on the floor of Congress saying, you know, making this moral argument, if we don't act, we'll have blood on our hands. And, and then, and, and at the end, and it's, it's this wonderful speech, and then at the end she's like, the government has known about this since 1989. And I was like, oh, uh, you're 40 years off, you know, it's like, it, like yeah. even, so even the people who are the leading on the issue don't, it, it's like they're still f in, the, in the industry narrative of like, this is a new, yeah. and of course the basic science of climate change goes back to the 19th century. Yeah. Anyway, so things like that are just. Well, those are the things that you make clear in here. I think that makes it um, really interesting and worth reading. Thank you. So thank you very much. Thank oh. you. Oh, yes, there's, sorry, one more. Well, I mean, I think what's happening around the Green New Deal and the sort of, yeah, I, th I think the main thing is that as much as you might revile, you know, the right or the Republican, National Republican Party, it's hard to see a pathway to any meaningful solution that if it's not, if there's, it doesn't become bipartisan at some point, um, basically because of the Senate um, and the filibuster. So like on a very practical level, uh, it doesn't matter uh, you know, if Jay Inslee is running on climate, if he wins the presidency, if the Republican has, you know, Republican control of the Senate, um, or even more than 40, whatever, 40 yeah. votes. And so, but I don't think the issue has to be partisan. It's all, it, and I don't think it's, it's central, as, as, as central as it is to sort of the ideology of the national party, I don't think it's central to most voters on the right in the way that maybe, you know, abortion might be. And so I think it is more budgeable, and I think over, over t history, when we've had sudden change on, on social issues leading to major legislation, it's usually accompanied by um, an appeal to a higher decency. And, and so I think that, that kind of language you see over and over again um, in, in, in the history of, of these things, and I think that's starting to happen now. And so I think it will have an effect, but yes, it's a question of scale and, and speed. Well, it's... I think it's time for you guys to yeah. buy your copy. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. And let's thank Jane Smiley. Thank you. It was lots of fun. Thank you.
books available. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.